Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi. Well, hello. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. I I think this is going to be, I hope this is going to be a very helpful episode. We have our book out and I hope everybody's flocking to their, (laughs) their local bookshops to buy it or to order it online. And we want this episode to kind of really help, you know, the parents who have gender diverse children. Yeah. You know, as we were um, kind of thinking about this, the first thing that really came to mind is that we are, you and I and the therapists in this world and the cultural commentators, like all of these people, but particularly the therapists, we're in a very odd position. Our primary client population is young people who are experimenting with their gender or exploring a new identity. And on the other hand, we also try to serve as advocates for their parents who often have conflicting goals with their children because these parents have been treated very, very badly by doctors, therapists, schools, etc. So we're kind of, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I feel often like I'm straddling the line between trying to really understand what these young people are experiencing, trying to make sure that their voices aren't diminished or squashed down or criticized or mocked, you know, like that can happen in the ROGD world. And on the other hand, I'm also trying to encourage parents to like take the reins, find their parental authority, stand up to doctors and schools, which are kind of undermining their, their parental rights. So it's actually a very strange balancing act. And I don't think if we were working in like anxiety disorders or like any other realm, we'd be facing this kind of competing interest situation. I couldn't agree more and I've never experienced it. I've never had this experience and I, I, I feel very uneasy around it, I have to admit. It's an uneasy space to be in and it's very, very important to me that any anybody I'm working with understands you know, that uh, I'm on their side, I'm on their team, I'm shoulder to shoulder with them. And I know I can do that within the therapeutic space. I, 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 I know my competence there and I know we go into a space and I'm there and I'm totally with them. But, you know, if ever it gets into a political realm, especially on social media, which I really I try not to I try not to even answer comments these days because I put forward whatever I've got to say, because I do think it's important to kind of offer an informed voice. But Mm. once it gets into somebody saying, well, why did you say this and what was this? I'm just like, well, you can see my material. There it is. You know what I mean? I, I because if you get into a back and forth suddenly you can, your words can be very misconstrued very, very quickly. And so number one is is the, the, the client, the person I'm working with. But then there's another presence, which is making their presence felt very strongly and their right to, which is the parents. And sometimes I'm working with parents and, I, you know, you and I both have a parent coaching site. 
So they're very much, they're, they're, a, they're a client and they need to be kind of attended to. And sometimes what they're saying is they have their own really, really difficult experiences, their own harrowing stories, and they are not in conflict with the child because they always want what's best for the child. But there can be two narratives going on mm-hmm. and that can feel mind boggling. And then there's a whole third presence. There's a whole third character and it's a medical scandal that's happening. And so they're a third part in this play. And so it does make for a, a pretty mind melting situation for us therapists. And I don't want to say, oh, poor us. It's not that. It's complex. I would like to say, oh, poor us. <laughs> no, Actually, kidding. I seldom refuse the opportunity to say poor <laughs> me. But it's, it's not, that's not actually my emphasis for once today. My emphasis is the complexity of that. Mm. And to make sure that um, we attend to all of this. Today's episode and often, you know, with our book, that's for parents. That's a book for parents. It's not for this client population because there's a lot of resources for the, the client population as such. And then also the parenting events we're having and the, you know, the, the, the different resources we offer is often for parents because they're so underserved and they've been treated so very badly by so many people that, you mm. know what I mean? Often the gender diverse teenager that I might meet or that you might meet or the gender diverse young adult, they haven't been treated badly. There isn't a history of being massively badly treated. Often, as some of them have, but an awful lot of them, they might have had, let's say, bullying or they might have had really difficult experiences. But it doesn't feel like they're coming out of a political war, which I sometimes feel with the parents, where the parents can say, they brought their child to hospital and they socially transitioned the child, even though the child was in for eating disorder. That sort of story isn't happening, mm. I feel, with, with the client population. So I'm talking all over the place there, but I suppose I'm highlighting the fact that, you know, when we go through like what what uh, what a, a, gender, a parent of a gender diverse child, a parent of a gender diverse child needs to know, we're not saying this in an accusatory way. We're saying this in in a bid to be helpful and we think it can yeah. be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I want to just ask or or maybe say, I don't know if I agree with you that there's a, a lot of resources for the client yeah, themselves. I, as soon as I said it, I thought, that's wrong and I have to go back to that. You're right. There isn't. <laughs> there isn't. Yeah. I mean, we, we would like there to... Isn't. No. We we have plans potentially to create yeah. things like that. But yes. I think the, the point is that... Um, you know, part of our work is based on the, the concept that when the adults are in charge of their child's care, they have to be the ones to set the pace and be in the lead and kind of be the example of like how to manage this. That's why I think it's so valuable to direct our energy and resources towards helping the parents, because essentially they are the ones who have to make these decisions on behalf of the child. Whereas, you know, like 14 year olds, are really not able to sign themselves up for like a course or whatever without parents helping them or paying for it or whatever. So parents are the avenue through which we support this entire family system. So that's why we think it's so important to focus on the parents. And I I also want to say there are a lot of different types of parents who have gender diverse kids or gender questioning kids or ROGD kids or whatever term you want to use. And we want to make sure to clarify some of the 
things that we're going to talk about today are not going to apply to every parent. So for example, if you are a parent who's been um, kind of hand-wringing and racked with guilt and questioning every single decision you've ever made and wondering about the minutia of like, should I have done this different or that different? Or is this my fault? Like many parents are racked with guilt. And for those parents, we just want to say, have grace, be compassionate with yourself, take it one day at a time. This could have happened no matter what, you know, like any decision you make or didn't make, you're most likely engaged, loving, you're leaning in, et cetera. Uh, okay. So we don't want yeah. everybody to listen today and think, oh gosh, I have to do all these things. However, you know, there's a type of parent, at least that I had on my mind, who I think is highly involved in activism and advocacy. They are, in a lot of ways, rightfully saying there's a cultural phenomenon that has swept up my child. Yeah. They might say things like the trans cult has stolen my child, et cetera, et cetera. And as I always say, there's always a grain of truth in these statements. Yeah. But... I think today we're saying, here are some things you may not want to hear because the picture is never that simple. It's never just one explanation and every family can benefit from examining their own family dynamics, what's going on for them as a parent, what's going on for their child as an individual. And so to those parents who perhaps have gotten locked into like a one explanation for what's going on. We want to ask you, invite you to kind of take a wider lens, broaden your perspective. Let's think about this from multiple angles, because if you have carved out the like antagonist in your narrative, it's like, who is to blame the medical scandal? Who's to blame like LGBT cult? Like if you do that, you're definitely going to miss some very important pieces of the puzzle and ultimately it's going to be much harder for you to connect with your child. And maybe even help them. Yeah. I um, When I said there was lots of support for the child, what I meant was there's a, there's a world of online goodwill for the children. Mm. Now, some of that goodwill can lead them to very nefarious places and it can be very misleading and inappropriate. But there's an awful lot, we would argue, of um, kind of... You the, mean the kind of like... Pro-trans support. Yeah. Like if a kid's trans yeah. identified, yeah. there's a lot of support for that. I see yeah. what you're saying. That's what I, that's where I was going. But actually, mm. there isn't an awful lot. And you and I have grand plans that I really hope we get the brain space in the future to really offer serious and significant proper resources for, for that mm -hmm. population. Because it's mm -hmm. really, really... But oh my God, there's so much, to, uh, so much to do. There's so much work to do. Now, yeah. on the other hand, there is... There's another world of support for for parents. I think two things have happened with parents. There's an awful lot of parents that I've met that have been treated really, really badly, really badly mm. by professionals, really badly by clinics, really badly by teachers, by schools, by their sister-in-law, by their sisters, by their, you know, you know, dis dismissed and condemned as bigots, as if they don't love their children. So I, I, I you and I have been horrified for some years now about those stories. What has grown up in recent years, I'm glad it's grown up, but I want to acknowledge that it's there, is a, a reactive force to that. And it has been 
a kind of, uh, and it's lovely and I've been very much part of it. You know, the GDSN, the Gender Dysphoria Support Network, Genspect, all sorts of parenting kind of supports and discords that are, are basically giving support to these parents. And I'm really glad they are. I have been concerned to note that no lo- no more than there is affirmative clinicians for teenagers and young adults who identify as trans and those affirmative clinicians don't really help because they don't offer a depth perspective. They don't offer a deeper understanding. They nod along like a nodding dog very often and they agree with everything these uh, people say without giving any sort of other under, you know, bigger picture kind of uh, analysis. There's also arguably the affirmative clinician for parents where they nod along to everything the parent says they say everything the parent says is correct and they um, never offer a deeper analysis. And so therefore it's the kind of the medical scandal um, is taking my child away. There's nothing you can do in the face of this. And um, often there is many, many things you can do. Often there is many, many different analysis the parent can look at and think about and approach and untangle around their family. Every family has complications and, you know, we fall into habits, dreadful habits, if you're my family, <laughs> that you have to kind of pull back from regularly and think, oh, hey, hang on, we've lost a way about this or we've lost a way about that or this has happened and that's happened. So the, the, the parent affirmative clinician worries me because that means the parent effectively um, takes their power away and just says it's all about the medical scandal. There's nothing I can do. Throw my hands up in the air. Wait it out. Shut down the computers as much as possible and wait it out. And I'm like, ah, oh, there's there's a lot more. There's generally a lot more we can do. So that yeah. that causes me significant concern. And I I say these words really carefully because I, I, I'm aware we need to give the parents a huge amount of support. Mm-hmm. So, and it's yeah. yeah, it's not just the parent affirmative clinician; it's the parent affirmative, you know, circles, the groups, and they need all the they need all this support. But let's watch out for being bland and unthinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, if somebody has a propensity to put the locus of control outside themselves to to blame external circumstances for their distress and problems and tends to construct like an evil out there like if somebody has that as a tendency in their personality and they find themselves under the pressure of this really demonizing culture which makes parents out to be the bad guy it could exacerbate that like maybe let's say slightly paranoid perspective that a parent could have and make it worse and make it harder for them to kind of navigate the situation. Um, and I, I'm i trying to think about, you know, is there a difference that I've seen between like what I sometimes think of as like that mama bear energy, which I think is very positive, which is like, yeah. I'm going to take the situation into my own hands. I'm going to be cautious and aware that there's unhelpful influences acting on my child. And at the same time, I'm not going to treat the world like it's a super dangerous place all the time you know like I still have to allow my child to be in the world like I'm thinking about what I call the SWAT team where a family kind of comes in 
All the devices gone, all the social gatherings gone, all the friend connections gone. And you put your kid in like a Rapunzel tower thinking that this is going to help. And actually there is some willingness to, to experience that fear or the risk that you have to have because your child cannot be frozen in time. You can't do that to your child. So for, for parents in this situation, I guess the thing that if we were to think about like, what is it that this ROGD parent wants to hear? I guess it's that completely monitoring, managing and controlling your child's behavior, their internet use, all of this is not, cannot be a standalone solution to helping your child. Like that locking down and terror and like block everyone out, that kind of perspective, I don't think is helpful. How do you think that kid fares under the SWAT team parents? I think it depends on a lot of things. I mean, number one, it depends on the connection and warmth. I mean, if you are a SWAT team family that also lacks warmth and connection and you've always struggled to connect with this child and there are some real serious family dysfunction going on underneath the surface, that SWAT team is just going to make things worse. However, I think if you are a family who is otherwise really well connected, you've had good relationships and what you're noticing is like your, your child's internet friendships are starting to change them and make them a different person, then I think that SWAT team approach paired with love, fun, engaging activities, spending time with the cousins, like you don't want to isolate your child, you want to fill their world with love and warmth. So those are like the differences. I think when there's a SWAT team also devoid of connection and warmth, it's very unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've I come across more often than the SWAT team. In fact, I'm trying to think, have I come across the SWAT team? <laughs> Maybe they haven't admitted it because they know I'd be wagging the finger. I more often come across the, the conflict avoidant or a GD parent where they are begging me to find them solutions that will not cause a fight. And I'm like, oh no, there'll be fights. And they are like, oh, I can't, I can't face them. And they would, they would... They would literally walk on on in their bare feet to Japan and back to avoid a fight. They would do anything for their child except a fight. And they won't have a fight. And sometimes actually the fight needs to be had or the argument. They even flinch at the word fight. <laughs> no, all fights are bad. So, okay, right. Argument, row, conflict, any of those. <laughs> <laughs> but there needs to be some sort of um, facing of a disagreement. And more often than that, maybe those parents seek me out because they know that's where <laughs> where I will zero in on if mm. you follow me. Because the SWAT team and maybe maybe I don't I don't know why I don't see the SWAT team parents. I I, I don't. And so, for example, I, I meet a lot of parents who, you know, who will not accept that perhaps the school is, is very, very bad for the kid. And maybe the school needs to be changed or maybe the friendship. If, if, if you know, um, if there's three trans identified uh, children in the in the group, in the friendship group and they're taking hormones or they're taking puberty blockers and your child is right in the midst of that, that that needs to be acknowledged. This, you know, you know what I mean? The, the kid can go to one hour of therapy a, a week 
But if they're getting everything else online, all pro-transition, they're being socially transitioned in school. They've got a friendship group that supports all medical transition. It's such a finger, like the little boy with his, his thumb in the dam. It's, 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 I'm not sure how much the therapy can really work. And so I'm kind of like, there has to be some sort of confrontation or some sort of acknowledgement that okay. some action has to happen. It's funny that we so, seem to, yeah, we're yeah, seeing well, two different groups. Yeah, well, those are two two things. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I, I definitely that's why I preface this at the beginning. Like, yeah. There's a type of parent that this is this is, I'm not thinking about. But yes, in consults, I sometimes find myself saying, like, you have to do something, you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe the two things Even that some thing. ROGD <laughs> parents don't want to hear is like one, you can't do everything. Yeah, and deprive the child of like engagement connection in life like that you can't do and then also you can't just do no interventions no changes and just cross your fingers so that the healthy medium is really what we're talking about yeah. somewhere in the middle so that's kind yeah. of two things yeah um yeah. what else what else comes to your mind about things um, parents one may not parent that hear? i i would really i i i would really like to you know work a little bit more on and we'll I'll mention it here but i think there's a lot to be said about this is i'm seeing an awful lot of parents who are undiagnosed autism or they have autistic traits they're obsessive they're they're absolutely obsessive and they are very cerebral. They're not in their bodies. They're, they're not kind of physical, tactile, warm. That's not how they operate. That's perfectly fine. They also have an autistic child. So it's an autistic parent meeting an autistic child. Maybe one of them is diagnosed. Maybe one, one of them isn't. But autistic traits is, is banging around all over the family. And they often will be very hyper fixated on the child's autistic traits without very much acknowledgement of their own autistic traits. And I think that needs to be brought into the equation, thought about, figured out how this might have manifested throughout the childhood and is manifesting now. And that parent, that autistic traited parent, is often very prone to being an expert on the literature an absolute expert and there's a there's a there's a line we cross and I have crossed it years ago maybe (laughs) where you know too much and when you know too much your ability to talk in in a gentle way is 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 limited because you know too much yeah yeah this is very important and I I hadn't necessarily put it together I mean you you have said this many many years ago and it really planted a seed in my mind which got me thinking but i think you're right and what i have noticed is sometimes i will work with a family for a long span of time intermittently whether through my parent coaching group or whatever and i'm kind of repeatedly saying it's typically not effective to just keep showing your kids medical data it's not effective and i will have so many parents who in earnest, really, because they are so compelled by the medical data that will years on end email me like, do you have a paper about this to show my child? Do you do you know where I can find this medical information to show my child? And it's like, we've talked about this so many times. It's probably not going to be helpful in your situation. And I find with families like these, I, I 
find myself explaining how does defensiveness work? You know, like how does how does it work when you're holding on to a belief and a hope as an ROGD kid or a gender distressed kid and you're so excited, you're so hopeful to, to heal your pain and then somebody comes in and just shits all over your plans. What might that feel like? Yeah. Especially when it's your parents who say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I want the best for you. And you're like, then why don't you understand? Like, this is my ticket out. So I, I find myself trying to explain like these basics of putting your, I always say, let's put ourselves in your child's shoes for a minute here. And sometimes parents in this situation have, sometimes that clicks and it makes sense. And then sometimes I meet parents who just keep coming back to like, I need more medical data. I need more medical data. Yeah. And they're missing the point. They're yeah. missing the point. And that's why we're having this episode because we feel certain people might be a little bit missing the point. Um, uh, the, the very next to the data obsessed parent um, uh, who, who probably needs to take their head out of the data and think, how can we connect them? Honestly, mm. part of me has a huge reservation saying that because I think if you are data obsessed and if you have autistic traits and so has your kid, I, I'm not that person. I don't have those traits. And I think, uh, honestly, each parent brings their own value to the to the party. You can only bring yourself. Mm -hmm. And if that is who you are, well, that is who you are. You, you, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And the ability for certain people to be warm and huggy and let's watch a movie. It's not their style. It's, and they, I don't think any parent should change who they are. You know, mm -hmm. you, you can only bring you who you are to it, but it's, yeah. it's something to highlight, I suppose. I think I think what, what I think about here is not necessarily that they should change their disposition. But even if you were to use, like, let's say extreme rationality to get through to your kid, maybe you have to start somewhere more basic. Like maybe you have to really understand what does your child think this medical intervention will do? Or like, have you ever really taken the time to have that conversation without, but wait a minute, did you see this paper? Or so I don't, I don't think people should make themselves be different, but I do think part of the challenge for all the adults who are concerned about this is trying to understand what the young person is really thinking and feeling. And I, you know, presumably if that, you know, introduction of medical information was going to be helpful, it probably would have been by now. You know, like usually by the time parents contact us, they've had a, maybe a handful of very heated conversations where they're confused about how, you know, my child doesn't seem to care that there's these medical complications. So by the time they've reached us, usually their strategy has not really served them very well or has not worked. So there is a kind of like shift in perspective that that needs to take place yeah. a lot of times. We hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are. We just wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of our listeners. Your support is the fuel that keeps this train running. So please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platforms. And do be sure to check out the conversations that are happening on YouTube in the comments section. We think that we have some of the smartest, most engaged viewers out there, and we really appreciate all of the interactions. Also, we produce additional bonus content every week for our listener community on Patreon. Go to widerlenspod.com and click on join our listener community. Your financial support means a lot to us. 
And for those of you who are in need of parenting support and resources, we each have parent coaching membership groups. So please do check those out. You can find links to both of them at widerlenspod.com or in the show notes. And of course, you can always buy our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, out now in the UK and the US. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. Alongside that date obsessed is the politicised parent who's on social media fighting the war that does need to be fought. And I, I know they, they need to be there. And some of them are phenomenally powerful. And some of them really mm. drop data in. I, I'm very fond of a few of them where I, I see them come in. I know their name. They come in so nicely and so well to different big figures. There's some of them that I just think are they do it so well. And, you know, the person who runs the the Genspec Twitter, one of the many, but, she, you know, she ran it single-handedly for so, so long. She's so phenomenal at coming in to the right person saying very nicely, just have you looked at this data? Have you seen this? Are you aware of? So some of them are phenomenal. But then there are others who are just fighting, fighting everybody. And I can see why, but it's something to, to be aware of within yourself, you know? Yeah. You know, I think what came to mind when we were thinking about this is like, for me, of course, there's a huge cohort of kids who actually have what we have termed, you know, Lisa Littman has termed ROGD, which is, this is a socially mediated thing they've latched onto that would not have happened if they were born in 1972. Okay. Yeah. But there are some kids who are going through this now who would have gone through it anyway. And so sometimes I wonder, are there parents who identify as ROGD parents, but in fact, their child is not experiencing ROGD. It just looks similar. You know, like when we Mm. talked to Genia and she was talking about all of these letters that this endocrinologist had received in like the thirties or forties. And he compiled them into this paper You know, I've read it and I've read so many other like old school accounts like that. And a lot of the experiences of transsexuals, as they were then called, sound a lot like sudden onset gender dysphoria, because it's like a man who's 20 or 25 and nobody in his life knows that he has this cross-dressing propensity, right, for example. And he's so deeply compelled by this. And there's something about transition that actually does work for him. So... It's very difficult because if you are a parent and you have a child, particularly if you have a son, a lot of this is a black box of information you don't know. And so I could imagine from your perspective, it may look like your child has just purely ROGD and this is completely a social phenomenon, but there are definitely cases. I mean, just based on odds and statistics alone, there are definitely cases of parents who think they have an ROGD kid who they have actually a kid is kind of like an old school transsexual. Yeah, arguably it occurred to me, they think they have an ROGD kid and they have an AGP kid. Yeah. Do do you know what I mean? That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That there's an autogynophilia that some, some clients of ours would have without a doubt. And it looks like ROGD. And Mm -hmm. that is something to contend with and it's difficult I think it's really really hard I've often wondered you know said you said like for example it works for the for the person to transition well I'm thinking 
does it work for the parents? Pro probably not. Now, where does that leave us? You know, of course, loads and loads of adults grow up and don't live a life according to the parents. And why should they? You know, you, 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 you know, I, I certainly left my parents very sharply behind at 17 and <laughs> I was gone and I certainly did not live according to their values, you know, um, for many years. And, um, well, whatever about that. And then also, you know, as we know, there's a, all sorts of, um, you know, autogynophile uh, uh, husbands and fathers. And it does not suit the trans widows. It does not suit the children. And that that's very difficult. And that's something that um, it has to be contended with. And I don't think we figured that out. I don't think yeah. we, we know where to go with that. We mostly yeah. meet the parents and the teenagers and the young adults. So, you know what I mean? That's where we mostly meet. But there are others. There are others in this. I think it's incredibly difficult. And I know you and I have worked with it. And I, I know I've worked quite a lot with, with some parents around knowing that your child is engaging in sexually, um, sexually, motivated. sex behavior. Yeah, sexually yeah. motivated mm. behavior that is really blowing the parent's mind and how yeah. to actually I don't think that you know there's a there's a there's a kind of a an evolutionary arguably an evolutionary protective shield between me and my kids and my kids and me that I don't want to know about their sexual awakening and they don't want and I think it's an incest kind of protective kind of yeah. evolutionary thing yeah I, that, say more uh, about that because this came yeah. up the other day like this mm. is actually really profound i hadn't thought about it mm. say what you mean it, it's a theory i have and i i don't know whether i read about it or whether i just thought of it myself but i often think that our ick our kind of creepiness our d d kind of i don't want to hear about people close to me in my family's sex lives i'm like i don't want to hear my parents having sex and i never did if you follow me and they don't want to see me or hear me having sex or have anything to do with and I wonder is it an incest protective mechanism if you follow me that we have an evolutionary discussed mechanism around when it's too close family mm -hmm. that, that's my theory now some yeah. people have laughed at this theory I, I only recently somebody fell around laughing. I will beat them up because I think it's a brilliant theory thank you because I do no, I mean, too actually well I mean, it's interesting because, like, I come from a culture where, like, parents and kids talking about sex or even periods or puberty is very taboo compared to, you know, in, in America and in the West. And I remember being young. Um, I got very little information from my mom. I could tell she was so uncomfortable talking to me about these things. It was really gross and disturbing. And as, you know, as I studied psychology and was like thinking, you know, when you're a psych student, you think you're a genius, which I still think I'm pretty smart, but it's gotten better. I've gotten much more <laughs> humble. But, you know, I used to think to myself, it is so regressive that parents don't talk to their children about sex. And like, I thought it was just this stupid cultural thing from the past. But actually, it, it is really uncomfortable for parents and their children to talk about these things. And I think I'm not a parent, but I can imagine you have to really force yourself to get over this ick factor to discuss these things with your child, even though you know that in some context, it's actually very necessary, you know, but but to kind of go back to what we were discussing before, I think um, there are a lot of parents who 
start to realize that there is this sexual component to what's going on with their child. And I think it may happen in women. Like I know, you know, Aaron Terrell's talked about this a little bit on transparency, but I think it can happen more often in men. And like, that's one thing that I just wanted to say. Some parents think they have an ROGD kid, but they don't. And how 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 should they know? I wonder how should we, we tell them that they know how to figure that out and also how to handle it. I know we've, you know, in our parenting events and other places we have, you know, had a special place for for those parents because I think they have a particularly difficult place. But I think a kind of an awareness that it could be happening is very important, especially among the males. Mm -hmm. A willingness to acknowledge that it might be happening rather than slotting yourself into OROGD and refusing to acknowledge any sort of sexual component. That's that's something to be wary of. Yeah. And I guess there's what comes to mind is like, as a parent, how much are you really ever going to know about your child's sexual life and what they do behind closed doors with their own body? Like, again, that, you know, how much do you really want to know about that? I mean, I think there's a obviously a kind of barrier there, as there should be between a parent knowing too much about their child's sex life, no matter what sexual orientation your child has. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because the parents are trying to get inside the minds of their children, you know, because they're trying to understand. They're trying to help them. They're trying to almost like detectives figure out what are the the puzzle pieces here that my child can't see. Like they're often playing this kind of detective role. And it makes me wonder about, especially as a child ages up, like if your child's 12, you absolutely have to be that in-depth detective. But like if you have a 25 year old. Are there some boundaries here that are sometimes being violated a little bit in this intense, obsessive desire to know everything in your child's mind and head? And I'm not a parent, so I could be wrong. And I want to be really careful because no matter how old your kid is, you as a parent love them and you worry about them more than anybody else. And that is very important and healthy. And sometimes you're the only person asking those detective questions, right? Mm. But I wonder sometimes about, you know, boundaries between adult children and parents. And that's just a bit tricky. Or that strange period between kind of 16 and 20. Boundaries at that point is very hard to figure out, if you follow me. Because, you you, you know, you, you're kind of clear on yourself when they're in the early mid-teens. You know, you're, you're allowed quite a lot of leeway mm-hmm. in your own head. Mm-hmm. Having boundaries between a, 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 an older teen is very, very hard, arguably. And, you know, having boundaries when your teen is distressed is even harder because you yeah. you know you want the best for them and you know you're probably best positioned to mm-hmm. want the best. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You really are thinking, I, 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 I would do anything and I really am knowledgeable about this and I'm knowledgeable about my kid and I think it's this and they're going down that way. So it's it's really, really difficult. And yeah. I, I, I think that the therapist parent dynamic is oh. something that we really have to address in this episode, because I think an awful lot of her I have heard so many awful stories. And I'm, I used to be very reluctant to ever say negative things about other therapists. I'm really moved. Often people say, where have you changed? Well, I've changed about that because <laughs> I say mm-hmm. a, a lot more because I've. 
I've heard so many dreadful stories, dreadful stories of therapists out and out downright lying to parents, of, of therapists really treating parents really, really badly, presuming the parents were a very negative influence without realising that there was a bigger story going on. You know, therapists dismissing any sort of online factor in the child's identification. Mm. You know, therapists being very high-handed and very, um, uh, very uh, destructive to the family dynamic. Parents who are, are therapists who are completely consumed by queer theory and gender identity theory, without even often knowing that they are. So I've heard of so many of those. And then I've also heard of an awful lot of parents, and this is something that's something that's always been very close to my heart, that when you ring up to seek a therapist, do you know what sort of therapist you're 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 talking to? Is it a psychodynamic? Is it a psychoanalyst? Because if it is, you might be seeing that your child might be seeing this this um ther- this psychoanalyst maybe three times a week, maybe for three, four, five years. That's par for the course for some psychoanalysts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People don't know that, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. They don't know what sort of different types there are. So I think the parent-therapist dynamic can be really awkward, especially if the parent is paying for it and the child is an adult and the therapist is working with the adult. That's, a, to me, a really difficult dynamic that, that is in existence. So what is it that parents don't want to hear in this kind of story you're laying out? They often don't want to hear that actually if the therapist is seeing your child, the therapist's job is to look after the child and not really to look after the parent. The parent has to look after themselves in other places, in other Mm -hmm. ways. Mm -hmm. And they often think it's almost a family scenario. Now, you and I have acknowledged because of the work we've done that it's become more and more like family therapy what we offer we bring in the parents we we try to bring them into the situation I think you do as much as I do in the beginning I think I did that more yeah yeah yeah. well you don't do that so much now well I haven't onboarded a new client in quite some time so my clients are a little bit older now than when we first started to work together so that changes the dynamic with parents but I mean, something I, I do consult with tons of families and oftentimes in those consultations, the topic of therapy comes up. So parents will want to ask me, like, how do I talk to the kid's therapist? Or sometimes like the therapist is undermining my position. What should I do? And I think what I want to say is, I mean, my first advice is always bad therapy can be worse than no therapy. Yeah. I say this all the time because yeah. once you have already engaged in some sort of therapeutic relationship with a clinician you do not have control over what happens in therapy really nor should you right like it's not it's not like a fast food restaurant where you go to the therapist and you say I want you to work on anxiety depression and social stuff but if body image issues and gender comes up don't touch it you cannot do that and unfortunately I think a lot of parents think that they can kind of order off a menu that way. That's not how it works. Once you have signed a contract with a therapist, the therapist is using their discretion, their clinical judgment to figure out what to work on. And you cannot demand and dictate what is done in therapy. So if you are going to engage in the relationship with a therapist, to some level, you have to vet them carefully and see if you trust them. And then once you have engaged in that relationship, you know, you should touch base every now and then if that's something the therapist does. But 
I think people may not understand like what it means to hire a therapist and what that what you're embarking on. It's an yeah. intimate relationship between the therapist and your child in terms of yeah. the dialogue, the conversations, the opening up, the emotions. You don't have a lot of control over that. Unless, of course, if your kid is very, very young and you're doing family therapy or something yeah. like that. But, but that, that's my point, I suppose. We need to emphasize, I think you and I in this episode, that the therapist's loyalty is with the child and it should be because that's better for your child. <laughs> Mm-hmm. as dis, dis dressing as it might be for you it's better that the therapist is like I'm centering the child here and this is who I'm working with and these who mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, I, I, I would love for more family therapy to become involved in, in the gender world because I think it's actually needed I think there's been so much distrust as a result of pretty awful stories that the ability for a therapist to say trust me I'm working with your kid. I have their best interests at heart. The ability for a parent to trust that when they've gone online and heard all the stories is really diminished. And I think therapists need to acknowledge that as well, if you follow me, because mm-hmm. that that trust has been battered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really yeah. tough. We'd like to jump in here really quick and offer up a thank you to Genspect, one of our sponsors. Genspect is an international organization that offers a healthy approach to sex and gender. Genspect recently hosted the Bigger Picture Conference in Denver, Colorado. There, they introduced the Gender Framework, a comprehensive, non-medical means of dealing with distress about gender issues. Go to genspect.org to learn more. We'd also like to give a shout out to GETA, Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. If you're looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, check out the GETA directory. And if you're a clinician who is questioning the affirmation model and you're looking for resources and community, please consider joining GETA today. Visit genderexploratory.com to learn more. One, one thing that I was wanting to share is that if your child comes out as trans um, and you're very kind of blown away by it initially, which I understand because parents are kind of thinking about again, this old school concept of what it means to be trans or transsexual. And they're like, they may be thinking, uh, where is this coming from? Is my child, for example, going to become homeless and drug addicted and a prostitute? Like they're thinking about this other concept of what it means to be trans, which may or may not apply in the current scenario. But sometimes they immediately say, oh, you're, you are very confused, you're having a mental health issue, you're mentally ill, we need to take you to a therapist. And it may not be that exact language, but I think that's definitely how it might land on the young person. My parents are doing all these things to try and fix me. And that can be very counterproductive because it is pathologizing and it kind of further emphasizes that this is not normal. And, you know, part of what we talk about a lot is just trying to normalize a lot of things. Normalize being very confused about your body. Normalize feeling a lot of shame when you start to develop, but that that's a temporary state, right? So when parents jump in with this immediate, like, panic mode, we need to get you into therapy, we need to get you, like, four therapists, we need to get you, like, Mm -hmm. mental health treatment, we need to put you in in inpatient. Like, all of that, I think... 
in some extreme circumstances may be necessary, but a lot of times I think it's over-treatment, it's overkill, it's a bit pathologizing, and it alienates the child from the parental connection, which we talk about in our book, that is the healing ingredient. It is slowing down, love, try to understand. It's okay that you're feeling this way. So all of that extreme rushing into treatment, I think can be unhelpful. I've had, I've had the experience of rushing in to fix my kid. I'll get Mm. out of my way. I'll be like a a, a truck going through trying to, to, to fix my kid. And I've had the kind of realization in the dark night of the soul kind of, that hasn't helped that intensity it's you know what i mean it's holding it too tight it's freaking the kid out it's mm. it's a burden on the kid's shoulders as they realize mommy is taking this so seriously every single breath i take is being judged here it i've i've been that parent too many times and my intensity is is unmatchable sometimes <laughs> and that's not a good thing so I have nothing but heart and, and empathy for this parent and I also think it is it can be very destructive it's definitely I think one thing that some parents need to know and not all but some and I'd be among them is if your parent if your kid is going to stress to through distress probably the first port of call is to get support for yourself because you will bludgeon them with your distress and you need to you need it's more important than that if you follow me you know what I mean like Winston Churchill says something you know sometimes it's not enough to do your best sometimes you have to do what's required my best will be just intense grabbing of the problem and throwing the kitchen sink at it going for it with such gusto and that mightn't be what's required that very often is not what's required. What's required is a cool head, pull mm-hmm. back, gentle holding, long term, and none of that comes naturally when your kid is in distress. You're like, get yeah. out of my way, you know? Yeah, and I think too, like another type of parent that I've encountered are parents who are very intelligent, very resourceful, maybe a type, very successful in business or their career. And they tend to be problem solvers and solution oriented people. And so this might be really a message for them. Like, you know, typically if there's a problem, they, they know how to contact, you know, the best professionals in the, in the field for that particular thing. Like if, you know, my husband had some heart health issues, we found best cardiologists in the country and we like threw all these things at the problem and got it fixed. So this is kind of a very different realm where you actually have to like lean in, be gentle, normalize waves of the ocean, like some, some steps forward, some steps back. Like it's not actually something that you can tackle head on, like a problem at work. So I wonder if that is helpful for some parents who are, I mean, that's my kind of people. Like, that's how I am. I'm very much like that in a lot of realms. But when it comes to these sensitive, you know, the realm of the heart and the emotions and the identity, it's so, you have to be so much more gentle. So that can be hard. Really, really hard. And I think when your kid is in distress, you, 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 you owe it to them to be honest to yourself Mm. and honest about what's going on whether it's sex whether it's intensity whether it's too much data whether it's 
you know the way you've often done that brilliant image of you know the parent tapping away on one side of the bedroom mm. wall and the teen tapping away on the other both in their bubbles both obsessive if that's going on to realize you know you know the activism isn't helping it's a distraction technique and it's a coping mechanism and it's a very understandable coping mechanism but there comes a point where it's actually it was helping 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 and now it's not helping you've crossed the line yeah you yeah. know what I mean? And it could definitely, you could say it was helping massively because it was keeping me sane and it was putting all my Ooh. intensity into something and my intensity had to go somewhere. And then it became a distraction mechanism and actually it became a barrier to connection. So, you know, the, sometimes the solution yeah. can work and then it can become the not solution. It can become the problem. Yeah. Like yeah. the life raft, I, I use the life raft analogy sometimes, like you're on one shore of a little river and you need a life raft and then you get to the other side and like you're on the other side of the shore. It, if you carry the life raft around, it's going to weigh you down. Just let it go. Like you're done with the life raft, yeah. you know, you don't need it. Well, there, there's kind of two more things I want to bring up. And if you have okay. more, what you're saying kind of made me think about like a minor thing that I want to share with parents, arguing on Twitter with gender dysphoric kids or trans identified kids or detransitioners is probably not helpful. And we could probably do a whole episode no about this. But <laughs> what I see sometimes is, you know, the detransitioner and the ROGD parent, of course, they overlap on Twitter. They follow one another. There's like all, and especially parents following detransitioners because mm. they see the detransitioner as this person with the, the key to what's going on with my mm. child. And what's sometimes the detransitioners, they get get to the other side of their situation and they develop, you know, this very like pro-parent kind of activist narrative. But yeah. very fairly, a lot of detransitioners are like, my parents hurt me. Like they, I know they were trying to do the best they could, but actually they hurt me. And they then project rightly or wrongly their own family trauma onto parents who are on Twitter Definitely. and parents who are on Twitter project their own trauma with their own child onto like trans activists or gender dysphoric people or detransitioners. And there's this real tension that plays out in these online spaces. And I guess, you know, I, I just want to say, do not put as best as you can, because we all do it, right? I'm guilty of it too. And I actually had some tweets where I had to apologize for stuff I had done. But um, try not to dump your baggage onto random people on the internet. Because yeah. they are also a young person trying to sort through their experience. And they're also a parent heartbroken by what's going on with their child. So I don't know if, how that fits in here, but yeah, I, and I want to add there's there's also there's a lot of shame around gender, a lot of shame with with the with the people who've transed, the detransitioners, mm -hmm. the parents. I think you know we really should do an episode on shame, and um, I think it can be so toxic. You know, guilt is when you feel that you've behaved out of your own self perception. You know, and it can propel you to behave better, so you might visit your elderly parents or something. Shame is a toxic, corrosive all-consuming kind of negative evaluation of yourself your whole self is wrong as opposed to i behave badly in that context mm. and um shame is something to be very careful around some of the parents i've noticed are almost masochistic talking to the detransitioners saying beat me hurt me 
I'm terrible. And and the teacher just should say, well, okay, because they're seeing a proxy parent saying, I'll give it to you. And so there can be some awful dynamics playing out. And it's like, you know, if you're filled with shame, don't go beating yourself up or Mm. inviting other people to beat you up. If you're filled with shame, you know, you need to heal yourself around your shame. You need you need to, yeah, confront it and, and deal with it. I want to say so much more about this. Ah. Okay, but you're right. I want to say, can we save this for another episode? I have yeah. a lot to say. Yeah, I think it's huge. I yeah. think we should okay. put it in. Okay, I'm going to make a note of it. Um, one other thing for me that I just want to touch on is, it's a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of our listeners. But I just want to raise the question. What if your child transitions and this is more of a long-term strategy for them? Yeah. We can talk about ROGD. We can talk about desistance and detransition. And sometimes detransition stories offer kind of a possibility for what a parent can imagine down the line. And what if that is not the case for your child? And this is a strategy that in the context of our culture, in the context of the shifting landscape around gender and identity and LGBT, this is a viable, manageable, long-term strategy for your child. How are you actually going to make sense of that and deal with it? And does being an ROGD parent as an identity conflict with how to stay present for your family and in your life? What do you do? And when do you say I'm moving out of the ROGD parent realm and I've got a kid who's medically transitioned and I'm, I'm, I'm moving into a different realm? When, when do you move into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes an awful lot of honesty to do that. Yeah. It's a different, I think it's a different mindset. It is no longer the problem solver. It is no longer the detective. It's no longer the medical scandal warrior. No. It's like, I have a trans child now. I have a trans adult child. Yeah. And I love them so much and I want to be part of their life. And there are a lot of things about their life and their appearance and their body that I don't, I don't know how to grapple with, but this is the facts of my life. So what do I do? Yeah. Yeah. And so many parents for thousands of years have confronted completely different contexts of watching their their child, you know absolutely reject all the Christian values that they'd been brought up with and it's horrified parents and things like that and I know the parents would be yelling at at their device saying it's not the same when they change their body and yeah I know I know I know you don't need me to kind of I get it and the physical complications and all the issues with it the heavy medical burden on the body I get it all it's 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 really really difficult to contend with But lots of parents have also contended with equally destructive decisions, arguably if they are destructive, and watched it, watched their adult children take those decisions and then Mm -hmm. realised, and we have to live, the world keeps turning, we still have to meet, we still 
move on. You, you know what I mean? And that's so hard, but it's it's something that needs to be said, aired, thought about and given some discussion. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've met so many wonderful people through this work, some detransitioners, some trans-identified people, some transitioned people. And I, I often wonder, like, for parents who are propping up the stories of various, you know, heterodox trans people and like, listen to this trans person, like they're talking about this. Like, what would you do if that was your child? Yeah. Would you refuse the name and pronouns? Yeah, like, how would you actually manage it? And that's, I'm not saying what you should do, because that's absolutely a decision each person has to make. You know, I've made my peace with how I manage the names and pronouns issue. For me, that's what's comfortable. Yeah. But like, if you're a person in this war and you're like propping up all these trans people because they happen to agree with you, like, what yeah. if it was a more intimate relationship? How would you actually manage that relationship and interact with this person? And it's just like a question that I think about a lot and you know, the limits of compassion and values and what's right yeah. and wrong. It's just very, it's just yeah. the thing to think about. And I don't know what to say. Everyone has to decide for themselves. As as they do with, with everything to do with not only being a human, but being a parent. Like you just have to find where you're, you're where you land and live your life mm -hmm. as authentically as possible. And I, I hope everybody listening to this episode, I, you know, I hope it wasn't too difficult to uh, listen and I hope it was interesting and informative for parents and that it's taken in the spirit it was offered, which is we're just trying to help. We're trying to kind of get through the politics to the psychology and say there can be psychological yeah. things that are going on that could be really important for your family. Can we can we can we get through that wall? into into the kind of more important personal dynamics that are going on yeah and I mean something that I think I really care about is telling the truth as I see it you know yeah. and there are these truths that have become apparent to me and as we always talk about the lens is always wider than any one side makes it seem and in in the light of this I think another episode that we have on our radar is what have we changed our mind about through the last, you know, six, oh, yeah. seven years of work? So we'll be doing something along those lines in the future too, but we hope that this has given people some food for thought. And um, it, there's a lot of complicated dynamics in this whole world. And it's a very complex story. It really is. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 